If you think in the last decade or the last 10 years, if you think how many devices you own, it increased, right? So at one point, it was probably on your computer. Then suddenly becomes the phones. Now you have your tablets, smartwatches, headphones, and we are still making everything objects we use smart with some goal of it can help us better our life. So these devices are often called the Internet of Things or IOTs. Now all of them have something common. There's a battery. And the rate we are going, we will have a trillion of these devices. That means just think how many other devices you have to charge. And if we do the math, we will replace 274 million batteries every day all around the world. These batteries need to be recharged or replaced or recycled. It cannot go to the landfill. So that's where my research starts. What can we do to get rid of batteries wherever we can? Basima Islam is a computer engineer with a passion to make the world more sustainable, one battery at a time. Her work focuses on the Internet of Things, a rapidly growing system of smart devices. These devices increasingly impact how we live and how much energy our lives require. Basima was born and raised in Bangladesh. Now she's an assistant professor at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute where she creates energy efficient devices. So the rest of us can power our futures without sacrificing the future of our planet. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, the next 50. I'm your host, Ken Stern. Today we wrap up our series featuring leaders in their 20s and 30s. They tell us what they've learned from previous generations, how they work to improve this world they've inherited, and how they imagine their supersized futures will unfold. I broke the news to Basima about how I really feel about the Internet of Things. So when you talk about the Internet of Things and we'll have a trillion devices out there, you know, when I hear that, I think, that's a little scary to me. I mean, that's like hundreds of devices per person collecting data on us. That's not a future that instinctively appeals to me. I'm curious why you're, you know, why you're excited to enable that future and how, how does that help people? To me, in this expected trillion devices, I think the future they unleash is actually quite exciting. A lot of things we use in our daily life, like the cup, the pen, the clothes where everything will have some technology built in, whose goal is not to interrupt our life. What the goal is, is that these devices will sense the context of our environment. It will let us know if there's something that is impacting our health or our mindfulness or even our work. Its job is to sense the things that is going around us and just let us know that, okay, this might have this X impact. You might want to take a look at it. It's never that they're going to make decision for us. It's more about working as an extrasensory system for the human being themselves. So they have more knowledge to make more educated choices. So give us an example of that, if you would. If it's a smart cup, I'm curious about that. This actually keeps your coffee warm for like eight, nine hours. That's his main goal. So for someone like me who drinks one cup of coffee for five hours, it's very nice. <laughs> so there's three things. One, 
let's say this cup can let us know how much water we are drinking, right? It can measure how much water you had on the cup and how much you finish and let you know, hey, you haven't drank any water in the last two hours. Your body might be dehydrating. But let's say it, this can also measure how much humidity is in the environment. If it's a less humid place, it has the potential to calculate how my dehydration rate will be. It will be also have the potential to let us know what are the minerals in the water. Is the water I'm drinking is even safe? So it's just a small example, but my vision is that the I call it intelligent everyday objects, that everyday objects will be intelligent to, to give us the information so we can make more educated choices. And the second thing is, this still needs to look like a cup, still needs to weight like a cup. Now, if this was like a three-pound cup, I would never use it. So the intelligent everyday object just doesn't need to be intelligent. It needs to serve their purpose of being that object by maintaining the characteristic that make it suitable for the specific work. So I think that's the future. So tell us what's your field of specialty, and if you don't mind recognizing that your interviewer and many of your listeners have no real technical expertise. Sure. So I'm going to tell you, give you a little bit of background before even saying what I do by starting why I do it. I think that's the most fun part. So let's say you have your computer, right? You are working on, let's say, a Word document. When you shut down, it takes a few minutes, right? It goes like loading, 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 and then it shuts down. So it's saving, making sure everything is right. Now, if you take your computer and while you're writing, just unplug it, everything you have written will be lost, right? Hours of work is gone. You just described part of my life that happens to be very frequently. So you, I'm breaking down on cold sweat right now. So you, you just save me from that? Sort of. <laughs> but we are not working with computers. We are working with tiny devices. But the problem is same. This device often goes through in states where the power just goes off, then it comes back, goes off, comes back. So it's like someone is unplugging and replugging the power again and again and again. So in the work scenario, you're writing, it's going down, you're starting again, it's going down, and you are never finishing the one page you are supposed to write for your assignment. So what do you do? You save the file every, like every, after every paragraph, every few lines. It's the same logic. Things that exist around us, the harvester that exists, the computers that exist, or the small tiny devices that exist, how can they be more, I would say, more smart in what they do? Instead of um, collecting every data, can they be smart enough to know which data is important, what matters, and only process that much? What that will provide us with the opportunity to use existing platforms and process only what we need, reducing the energy consumption and allowing us to use ambient energy, which is always around us. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to pay for it and use it for powering this everyday intelligent objects in a sustainable way. When you're talking about ambient energy around us, um, are you talking about the sun? Are you talking about kinetic energy? So far, we have worked on solar, definitely. It's one of the biggest one around us. Uh, I personally have worked on RF radio frequencies. Um, I'm currently working on kinetic energy. And there are researchers around 
uh, the United States who have done tremendously amazing job on developing very efficient thermal harvester that can harvest energy from your skin, from very low lights. So let's just pause there and say, what the hell are you talking about? How do, my skin doesn't have energy, or does it? What 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 does that vision look like that we're powering our own devices? So if you think about, we are warm-blooded creature. A snake is not. A snake is a cold-blooded creature, but we are warm-blooded creature, and it's often that our body temperature does not match the temperature of our environment. So anytime there is a temperature difference. There is a flow of heat, which is an energy. Any flow of heat, um, according to the rule of energy that it doesn't disappear or it cannot be created out of nothing, this flow of heat energy can be converted to electric energy. And that's what's going to give you power. So this will work well in Boston uh, and perhaps not so well in Bangladesh. Probably. So take me back, if you would. Where did, how did a young girl in Bangladesh get interested in computer science in the first place? One of my reasons for choosing computer science and engineering was I like to build things, and I like things that I can see after I build it. So, for example, one of the first projects I did was learn how to code to develop tiny games. I think that was a most happy moment for me. Like, oh, I have made again, no matter how simple that is, no matter it just can do one thing, but there's a game. I can play the game I made. That itself brought me a lot of joy. So I'm curious about sort of the social pressures, um, especially 10 years ago in the United States, uh, I would say that, that computer science was a male-dominated field, probably still today, but certainly a decade ago when you were entering. So I'm going to make the leap and guess that it's the same in Bangladesh. So yeah, it's still true. The gap is slowly decreasing. The pressure still exists, but I would say it's getting lessened. From the beginning of computer science, there was a lot of women in it. If you think of Ada Lovelace, like these are women who wrote the first code. Then there was a social shift. It's existed in Bangladesh too. For example, we were 120 students in the computer science and engineering department in my cohort, and only 17 of them were females. If you look at Bangladesh, education is highly encouraged. Even someone who is coming from less fortunate socioeconomical condition, one of their biggest concern is how they can make their next generation more educated than they could ever be. So I think that specific mindset contributes a lot for a developing country. The education for female are also very encouraged in Bangladesh. We have a lot more female joining the computer science over time. I would love to see a little bit higher rate in this growth, but I'm an optimistic person. I'll take any growth as a positive direction. So let me ask you to go back a little bit further in time in Bangladesh. So tell us a little bit about your grandparents and how your life has turned out differently than theirs. There's a lot of changes happening in Bangladesh. It went through the two partitions. It went through a partition from British, which was the colonization coming to an end. And there was another partition, which has as a liberation war for my country. 
So my parents had gone through the second one. My grandparents had gone through both. But I would say in both of my families, it was always the case that all my dad's brothers and sisters and all my mom's sisters, they all have been given the equal opportunity to study the area they want. And both of them did a really good job of bringing up their daughters as strong, independent women. I would say that flowed <laughs> to how my parents brought me up as strong, independent woman, and my, so is my elder sister. So none of my grandmothers were working women. However, they did manage to grow up nine and four kids. Yeah, that's working. That is working. And Bangladesh is a very tight, neat, family-oriented country. For us, family matters one of the most. Our grandmoms does not only have to look after their children, but their in-laws, their own parents, the cousins, the kids of the cousins, and had this harmony. And to be honest, I feel like that is one of the hardest job anyone can have. I have one kid. He breaks me. So, <laughs> so I never met my maternal grandmom. So she passed away before I was born. But I have heard so many stories of how independent she was. And wow, back in that age, being a strong woman and not just being on the backseat, driving a household is a big deal. And so my only grandparent who's alive is my paternal grandmom, my dad's mom. She is, I think, 93 now. She got COVID three times already, and she's still very strong, and she still will see what is happening in the house, what's getting cooked, if everyone is okay, if someone needs something, such something she can do. So I admire them a lot. If you think, like, from that generation to our generation, the mindset has changed. We have expanded our wings. We expanded our horizon more. But I would say that what they have done, the amount of work they had to put, is really incredible because also they had a lot more obstacles than us. And because they worked with that obstacles, is now we have less obstacles to overcome. So we've talked a little bit about your family, and thank you for telling me about their lives. You have a maternal grandmother who's 93 and apparently invincible, and your paternal grandmother is an amazing woman as well. But let's actually talk about your future. What's your vision for your next 50? Uh, what does success look like for you? So for my career, I, I would like to do something that is impact. So one of my long-term vision is to have the sustainable everyday objects, intelligent everyday objects for healthcare, to be a part of developing the sustainable healthcare system where we won't be doing a lot of intrusive or uncomfortable or privacy concerning sensing, but sensing that helps the person to, in their daily life, predict if some big health hazard is coming. For example, let's say someone has a high potential of getting heart attack in the next few hours. If somehow in the long run we can design this without having that person charging their all devices to monitor them all the time, if I can achieve that, I would say that's when I feel like I have some success. And the other side would be if my students can achieve what they want, have them fulfill their dream. So I would see that as my academic success in the next 50 years. 
I would also love to be successful in my personal life. That is having a happy, healthy life with my husband. We have been together since our freshman year. So I would love to see both of us growing old together. So I have one wrap-up question. As I understand it, the pharaohs, when they were planning for the afterlife, would ask to have things buried with them that they could bring with them to the beyond. If you were a pharaoh, what would you want to take with you to the afterlife? I don't think I want to bring anything. I would be happy and satisfied and not needing anything. If I can have some impact in someone else's life with my research and live a happy life with my spouse. That's computer scientist Basima Islam. And this is the last episode of Century Lives of the Next 50. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations about younger leaders' work, dreams, and aspirations for their longer lives. In February, we release our next season, Century Lives, Place Matters. The sad reality of life in America is that the less money you have, the fewer years you're expected to live. But it turns out that where you live also has an impact on longevity. To find out why, we travel across America to poorer communities that defy the odds. Century Lives Place Matters will share their recipes for longer, more equitable lives. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson and Aaron Bump. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for this season of Century Lives comes from the James A. Johnson Longevity Prize for Excellence in Media, recognizing journalism and entertainment that addresses the dramatic increase in life expectancy in the last century. I'm Ken Stern. Thanks for listening.